Well, I imagine that it happened when our first ancestors tamed fire for the very first time. Family and friends got together. It was the end of a long, hard day and food was had and drink was enjoyed. And then that's when it happened. It happened for the very first time. Someone told a story. Someone told a story about a hero. A hero who saved the day, who changed the course of things and a hero who made a difference because that's how heroes work. That's what heroes do. Heroes save the day, change the course of things and make a difference. Now, ever since that time, uh, people have told stories about heroes. Every culture has them. Psychologists actually say that every culture needs them uh, because hero stories are actually good for us. Hero, hero stories make us better. Hero stories make us stronger because they inspire us they comfort us, and they transform us. Uh, they inspire us because they give us what experts call emotions of elevation. They cause us to look to and reach for something better and greater than ourselves. They comfort us. Uh, they deal with our fears and they anchor our spirits in safe harbors. They strengthen our hope and they foster character and good values and they motivate resilience in the midst of difficult and trying situations. And then they transform us. They help us to become better versions of ourselves as we're inspired to pursue the best version of ourselves. That's what heroes do for us. That's why all of us need to pay attention to hero stories because they inspire us, they comfort us, and ultimately they help to transform us. Now, heroes and their stories, they remind you and they remind me, hopefully, that we all have a capacity at, time, at times to save the day or change the course of things or to make a difference in someone's life. They remind us that we should pursue in our own lives significance rather than just renown or prosperity or success. Uh, and when you think about heroes and the stories that are attached to their lives, uh, they often have common threads that weave them all together. Though the stories are different and the names are different and the places are different, uh, yet there are certain threads and themes that bring hero stories together. And, and here's some of those themes that bring them all together. Uh, heroes are almost always other-centered. They live their lives thinking about other people, not themselves. They're doers of good. They're champions of justice. They're givers, not takers. They get involved. They don't sit back and they don't watch other people get involved while they themselves just sit back and critique and talk about the people who get involved. No, they get involved themselves. They're selfless, not selfish. They're courageous. They're not cowards. They stand with, speak up for the marginalized and the oppressed. And you find those themes almost in every hero story to one extent or the other. And because heroes do these type of things, they change things for the good. And the overarching theme when we talk about heroes is the idea that people's lives are better because of the life of the hero. People's lives are better because of the life of the hero. So ultimately, as we kick off this study uh, this week, keep in mind that a hero is someone whose life makes another life better. That's a hero. A hero is someone whose life makes another life better. Now, when I grew up as a kid, I had my fair share of heroes, probably like 
like you did. Superman, you know, Clark Kent goes into the phone booth, comes out Superman. I mean, that was just the coolest thing ever. And that was back in a day when there were actually phone booths. Some of you have no idea, Google it, look at the images and then read a Wikipedia article about it. it he walked into a phone booth as Clark Kent, a little bit of a dork, a little bit, you know, of, of a guy that didn't look the coolest in the world. And then he, he walks out as Superman. He comes out a superhero. And then there's Batman. You know, Batman always had the coolest car. He always had the coolest gadgets and he had the cake. And, and then, of course, if you're Batman, you get the money of Bruce Wayne as well. So that's pretty good. Then there's G.I. Joe. Then there's He-Man, you know, Power of Grayskull, that whole thing. And then, of course, for those of you uh, who are ladies that are watching today, you probably had some different heroes like, you know, She-Ra or Wonder Woman or Batgirl or Wasp or, you know, it, there's just all kinds uh, of superheroes to go around for both males and females. But here's the thing about superheroes. They always had a villain to stand against. They always had a villain to fight. They always had a villain to defend the people against. And so as they would stand against the villain, they saved the day, they changed the course of things and they made a difference because that's what heroes do. Now, that's just not for fictional heroes. That's also for real life heroes as well because if you have eyes to see and ears to hear and if you pay attention, and if you've lived life long enough, you know that there's real life heroes in everyday life. Uh, there's soldiers who go off to war to bravely defend freedom. Uh, there's 9-11 and FDNY and the stories of firemen like Oreo Palmer who rushed up the stairwell in World Trade Center to save as many lives as possible. There's the stories of teachers who've made a difference in young guys and young ladies' lives. There's doctors who saved a life against all odds. There were law enforcement individuals who served and protected. There were volunteers out in the community, volunteers in churches and nonprofits who influenced people's lives through their volunteerism. Uh, adoptive mom and dads who forever changed the future of the child they adopted, random citizens and acts of kindness, parents, moms and dads who raised up sons and daughters who made a profound impact in the world that they sent them off into. But here's the thing, when it comes to real life heroes and it comes to our culture, when we live in a day where we really could use lots of heroes, uh, we could actually stand more conversations that is pointed in the direction of heroic living because we live in a day, it seems to me, that we're concentrated more often than not on the villains of our culture. Uh, we're often talking about the enemies that are out there in our culture when maybe we ought to just stop and, and talk about the heroes just a little bit more than we do because the only answer for villains, whatever face the villain wears, the only answer for a villain is a hero. And that's why we're doing this series because if we ever needed heroes, it's now. If we ever needed a generation of men and women, teenagers, boys and girls to, to rise up and say, you know what? I wanna be a hero in my generation. We are at that point in history. And what I want you to buy into, what I want you to believe in this series because it's absolutely true. I want you to believe that you have the capacity to change the course of things, you. Right there where you are, who you are, you have the capacity to change the course of things, to make a difference, to be a hero. You have that capacity. You may not believe it today, but it's my goal today to begin to convince you of that because that's what this series is all about because we're gonna spend the next few weeks looking into the scripture and as we look into the scripture at some men and women, these men and women, we're gonna find they lived heroically in their generation. 
Uh, these men and women that we're gonna talk about, they were imperfect, they were flawed, like you, like me. They were products of their generation and culture, like you and like me, but you know what? They found a way to rise above it above the family dysfunction, above the personal insecurities. They found a way to rise above their past, their failure, their fear, their inadequacy, their lack of talent, their lack of giftedness, their lack of seemingly opportunity to do the great things that they had aspired to do perhaps earlier on in life, deep in their heart. We find people who found a way to rise above their circumstances in life. And when the moment demanded it, and when opportunity presented it, they decided to be a hero. They decided to do something heroic. And so what I want us to learn throughout this series is this bigger idea when it comes to living as a hero. You have a superpower and I have a superpower. Perhaps you have more than one superpower. I'm gonna venture to say that you do, that you have certain superpowers at your disposal that if you will leverage them, I have certain superpowers at my disposal if I leverage them. And those superpowers allow me to do the heroic thing. Now, someone may never look at you and they will never look at you and say you're faster than a speeding bullet or you're more powerful than a locomotive or that you can you know, leap tall buildings with a single bound. You don't have x-ray vision, you can't bend steel with your hand. Your superpowers are less dramatic. They're not as flashy, but they are profound and they are powerful when you and I decide to use them. So today, I wanna to talk about a hero that we find in the New Testament. And uh, he's a hero that we don't often think about when we think about heroes from scripture. And who we're gonna talk about is a guy by the name of Joseph from Cyprus. And like I said, when you think of heroes from scripture, you don't typically think of Joseph from Cyprus. Uh, you've got a small list of men and women that you think of when you think about the great people of faith from the Bible. But Joseph from Cyprus, is in my opinion, one of the most heroic people in all of scripture. Now you're not gonna find a story where he, where he turned an army to flight. You're not gonna find a story where he healed anyone. You're not gonna find a story where he uh, slayed any giants, but what he did do was nothing short of heroic. Matter of fact, let me tell you how heroic I think he was. I think Joseph from Cyprus saved half of the New Testament. Now you think about the New Testament that you love to read and all of the wonderful theology and all the wonderful information that's there in the second part of your Bible, what we call the New Testament. I think that Joseph, Joseph from Cyprus saved half of the New Testament. I'm absolutely convinced he saved at least one of the four gospels. I know that he saved the future of a young man and I'm equally convinced he saved the future of Christianity. He changed the course of history. He's one of the most important people that you're gonna read about in the New Testament and we're introduced to him in Acts chapter four. And this is what the book of Acts says. It says, Joseph, there he is, a Levite from Cyprus, that's our guy, whom the apostles called Barnabas. And it's like, ah, oh, now I'm not feeling as uninformed as what I was 30 seconds ago. Joseph from Cyprus is actually Barnabas? Yes, that's right. So he had a nickname, Joseph from Cyprus. His nickname was Barnabas. The apostles gave it to him because he was known as the son of encouragement. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is how we meet 
Joseph from Cyprus, or probably how we will refer to him the rest of our study together, Barnabas. We meet him in the days when the church is rapidly growing. Uh, the church is pretty much disorganized at this part. It's a little bit chaotic. It's a whole bunch messy. But yet Barnabas, we're introduced to him as a man who believes in the purpose of the church, a man who believes in the mission of the church. Jesus had told his disciples to go out and to make disciples of all the world beginning in Jerusalem and not, not to stop until they got to the ends of the earth. And Barnabas believed that the purpose of the church was the most important thing in all of the world. So he funded it. That's how we're introduced to him. Now, as I was studying this week, I found out some things that I, I had never really heard about Barnabas. Clement of Alexandria, he said that Barnabas was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out in the gospels. Now we don't know that for sure, but Clement of Alexandria, for some reason thought that, you know, Barnabas was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out. Also, we find out when it comes to Barnabas in Acts chapter 14 at verse 14, he is called an apostle. So here's Barnabas, who is nicknamed the son of encouragement, uh, perhaps was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out in the gospels, and he's referred to as an apostle. But, but here's the thing, the way that we are introduced to him, that's still his legacy. We are introduced to him as an encourager. That's still his legacy today. So he was the son of encouragement. And when it comes to encourage or encouragement, I think that a definition will be helpful just to give us a little bit of insight to this man, Barnabas. To encourage someone means to give support to, to give confidence to, to give courage to, or to extend hope to. That's what it means to encourage, that you support someone, you give someone courage, you give someone confidence, and at the end result of their interaction with you, somehow you have deposited hope in another person. This was Barnabas, and I think that's a pretty great thing to be known for, that when you thought about Barnabas, he was the guy who was always supporting someone, he was always the guy who was making people feel more confident, he was the guy that was always making people feel more courageous, and he was the guy that when you left a conversation with him, you just felt more hopeful. He was a lifter. He was a, a builder. He was an encourager. And every time that we find Barnabas in the New Testament, that's basically what he's doing almost every single time. Now, after we're introduced to Barnabas and he funds the purpose of the church, the church continues to grow. It's spreading like a wildfire. And as it continues to grow, the tension between the church and the temple authorities continues to escalate. Now, you'll remember that it was the temple authorities that colluded with Rome to put Jesus to death. And now the temple, they're pretty angry that this Jesus movement is still continuing. Now that his followers are claiming that Jesus not only died and was buried, but he was raised from the dead. So in order to stomp out this movement called the church, the temple authorities, they bring in a hired hand. They bring in someone who was competent, someone who was passionate, someone who was a zealot for all things Jewish. The man's name was Saul. He was from Tarsus. And he came into Jerusalem with one goal and one mission, and that was to stop this movement of Jesus' followers called the church. So there was an event in the early part of the book of Acts. It was a tipping point for the very beginning of a persecution that would change the landscape of the church for the rest of the book of Acts. The uh, apostles had continued to tick off the temple authorities. Saul comes to town and Saul pulls the trigger and puts a young deacon in the church to death. A young deacon by the name of Stephen. 
He actually, it says in the book of Acts, that he held the coats, that Saul held the coats of the men who did the dirty work of throwing the stones as they pelted Stephen's head, ultimately until he died. When Stephen died, it opened the doors for a fierce persecution against the church. Believers in Jerusalem began to scatter. They left Jerusalem, they went into Judea, into Samaria. They went north, they went south, they went east, they went a little bit west. <laughs> there wasn't much room to go. And so they began to expand outside of Jerusalem, just like Jesus had asked them, but it was the persecution that actually motivated them to get out of town. Saul now has an unquenchable thirst for the blood of these Jesus followers, intent on stomping out the church. He gets authorization papers to travel north to Damascus. And as he's heading to Damascus to persecute more Christians, the most unthinkable thing happens. He meets Jesus. The Jesus that he knew was crucified, that he knew was buried, but now is very much alive. And because he was a witness to the resurrected Jesus, Saul, who was a Jesus hater, became a Jesus follower. Now, I'll just say time out here for just a moment. If the only reason that you can think of when it comes to following Jesus is the fact that he died and was buried and was raised from the dead, if that's the only reason that you can come up with concerning why you should follow Jesus, that's the only reason that you need in order to follow Jesus. He died for your sins, he was buried, and he was raised the third day. So Saul becomes a Christian, becomes a follower of Jesus. He starts preaching in the synagogues. He preaches that Jesus is the son of God. He was preaching in such a way and reasoning from the Old Testament that it says that the Jewish people in Damascus, they could not refute what he was saying. And because they couldn't refute what he was saying, they got so angry, they wanted to put him to death. So they put some you know, men to stand guard at the gate of the city. And so they were waiting for him to come or go because they weren't really sure where he was. They just knew he was near and they were gonna catch him and they were gonna put him to death. That's how much Saul had ruffled their feathers. But someone let Saul know exactly what the plot was. And it says in the middle of the night, he was lowered over the wall and he escaped. When he escaped, he wanted to go to Jerusalem because he had some people that he wanted to talk to. Who did he wanna to talk to? The apostles. So he went to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles because I'm sure he had questions and I'm sure that he wanted to hear more stories about Jesus. And this is what Acts says. It says, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers but they were all afraid. I'm sure they were. They were afraid of Saul. Why? Because they had watched him put one of their close friends to death just a few weeks before. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Now think about this. We're talking about Peter and James and John, and we're talking about Nathaniel, and we're talking about Thomas, and we're talking about Jesus's closest followers. We're talking about the apostles, the leaders of the church. And you know what they were? They were cynical. They were skeptical. They looked at somebody like Saul and they thought, no way. There was no way that even God would change a person like Saul. And so they were absolutely in unbelief. They assumed because of Saul's past, they assumed because of what they had watched Saul do just a few days before, that there was no way that he'd become a Jesus follower, that there was still nothing good about this guy. So they questioned the whole thing. And here's the picture I get. Saul is knocking on the door saying, guys, let me in. I want to I wanna have a conversation. And they're on the other side of the door and they refuse to unlock the door. Saul wants in. He wants a seat at the table. But they don't want any part of Saul and they surely don't want Saul sitting at their table. But then something changed. And, and the very next verse says, then, then. There's something about to happen that's gonna change this whole dynamic. It says, then Barnabas 
brought him, brought Saul to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus. And I love this. He tells Saul's story for him. He knew that they wouldn't believe Saul, so Barnabas decided to tell Saul's story for him. He said he saw the Lord on the way to Damascus, and he told them about how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Barnabas saw what the apostles couldn't see. Barnabas chose to believe about Saul what the apostles weren't ready to believe about Saul. And and here's the thing about Barnabas, he took a risk. He risked his standing, he risked his influence, He risked his authority in the church, and he stands with and he speaks up for Saul, a man who killed one of their deacons weeks before. Think about the risk of that. Think about how emotionally charged this whole thing is. Saul had allowed a man to be pelted to death by stones. It was bloody, it was violent, it it was a public execution. It was injustice to the uttermost. But yet now Barnabas is standing up and speaking on behalf of Saul, of Tarsus, risking his own reputation for someone who had done the unthinkable, what some would say, the unforgivable. And you know what he does? He endorses him, puts his stamp of approval on Saul and says, guys, you need to let this guy in and you need to give him a seat at the table. And you know what happens? The apostles receive him. And the rest is what they say is history. But here's my question, what if it wasn't? What if the rest wasn't history? Think of what that moment meant. Think of what that moment meant when Barnabas went and spoke for Saul, when he stood up for Saul. Think about what that moment meant for the future. Think of what that moment meant as it relates to half of our New Testament. Think about all the letters that Paul would write. Think about all the churches that Paul would plant. Think about all the theology that we have gotten from the perspective and the insight and the inspiration of Paul. Think about what hung in the balance in that moment. Barnabas is going to bat for the guy who ultimately is gonna plant churches all around the Mediterranean rim of the Roman Empire, who basically is going to change the world, who has more influence within Christianity, only second to that of Jesus himself. And he stands there and he speaks up for Saul, the man the apostles were ready to dismiss, that they weren't ready to believe that such a thing could happen in the life of someone like Saul. I mean, imagine where we would be at had Barnabas not done that. Imagine we wouldn't have Romans 1.17, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the, Jewish, to the Jewish people first and also to the Gentiles. We wouldn't have Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We wouldn't have Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good. We wouldn't have Romans 8, 38, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Ephesians 2, that by grace through faith that we're saved, not of works, lest any person should boast. Think about all that perhaps we would have missed had Barnabas not stood up and spoke up for a man that no one was willing to pay attention to and listen to. See, Barnabas had no idea that his willingness to believe in someone and speak up for them would change the course of history. He had no idea. And today, the Apostle Paul, if you ask a lot of Christians, they will tell you, oh, that's my hero. I love the Apostle Paul. I love his story of conversion. I love how he was a persecutor and then he became a preacher. But Paul is only... (laughs) someone's hero today, perhaps only because Barnabas decided to be Paul's hero. 
the man that brought him to a table that he wasn't welcome at. So what happens after this, Paul begins to preach. Saul that now we call Paul, he begins to preach all in Jerusalem. He causes a stir and people want to put him to death. And, you know, Paul had that effect on people. Everywhere he preached, people wanted to put him to death. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it seemed to be a good thing. Uh, but preachers today, were not really interested in that type of resume. Uh, we like to please people these days, but Paul, he, he just, he knew he was doing a good job if people wanted to kill him. And so he preached in Jerusalem, people wanted to kill him. And so the apostles took him out, sent him to Tarsus. There's about a decade that's gonna go by. He's gonna go and he's gonna do some things. We're not really sure what he's doing in those 10 years, but, but while he's doing whatever he's doing for those 10 years, the church continues to be the church. And up north in Antioch, Syria, something really interesting begins to happen. Gentiles, non-Jewish people begin to be, to be converted to faith in Jesus. People who didn't believe in the law of Moses, people who didn't believe in the Old Testament, people who didn't observe the traditions of the Jewish people, they begin to say they were now followers of Jesus and they're now claiming to be part of the church. And so people down in Jerusalem, they weren't sure what to make of this. They're not sure about whether this is a good thing. They're not sure of whether this is a, is a healthy thing because down there in Jerusalem, they're hearing about all these Gentiles up north that they don't really have a good code of conduct. They don't really have a strong religious background. And all of a sudden they're claiming to be part of the church with all of these Jewish people in Jerusalem. They're, they're not sure if these Gentiles deserve a seat at the table. They're not sure if these Gentiles' voices deserve to be heard. These two groups, the Gentiles and the Jewish people, they held nothing in common. There was a lot of racial tension. There was a lot of ethnic tension. There, 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 there were very few things that these two groups of people held in common. In many cases, the Gentiles experienced prejudice, painful prejudice, uh, overt prejudiceness from the Jewish people. And sometimes it cut both ways. And now you've got both of these groups claiming to be part of the same church and following the same Jesus. And so it was creating quite a stir. And it says news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And you know what they did? They sent Barnabas. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And it says that when Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. And look what he did. He encouraged them, those, those Gentiles. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. You know what it would have been easy to do? It would have been easy to walk in and find a problem. It would have been easy to walk in and say, this is the reason this is not gonna work out. It would have been real easy to walk in and say, you know what, this is gonna be too much of a fiasco. This could be the thing that blows the whole thing up in a bad way. But you know what Barnabas did? He walked in and he decided to look at things with a different set of eyes. He decided to see a move of God. He, he decided to see God doing something. He wasn't threatened by new. He wasn't threatened by a radical departure from normal. He not only embraced it, but he celebrated it. He was so excited, he went up to Tarsus, got Paul, said, Paul, you gotta come down here. And you know what he did? He turned Paul loose and said, have at it, big boy. Preach to these people. And they would do that for the next year because Barnabas didn't need to be first chair. He didn't need to be the quarterback. He didn't need to be the one who was sitting at the top of the pyramid. No, he stepped out of the way and he said, hey, right here he is. Listen to this guy preach. And I imagine that as Paul just preached up a storm, I imagine that Barnabas was in the back of wherever they were gathered, just smiling, thinking to himself, my goodness, this guy can preach. This is so incredible. And so they stayed there for a year. 
Here's the thing I love about Barnabas. He never gave in to cynicism. Not when it came to Saul, not when it came to the Gentiles in Antioch. Never once did he lose his ability to trust in people, to lose his belief that people can change, that people can go from this to that, that God can use anybody. The thing that I love about Barnabas, he was always standing with and speaking for a group of people who didn't have a voice. He was always standing with and speaking for a group of people who didn't have anybody else in a position of power or influence to speak up for them. That's Barnabas. That was his superpower of encouragement. Now, eventually you can read about an Acts. It's a great story and I tell her way too quickly, but you need to go read it. But Antioch eventually sends Paul and Barnabas out to start other churches. And so they go out and they preach the gospel, they start churches, and then they came back to Antioch to give everybody in Antioch a report of how things had gone. And so it says after they had been back in Antioch for some time, it says sometime after that, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Okay, sounds good, let's do it. It says, Barnabas, however, wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him. Why? Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and it cannot continued, had not continued the work with them. And then it says this, this is amazing to think about. They, Paul and Barnabas, had such sharp disagreement that they parted company. Think about that. Don't read it like a Christian. Don't read it with self-righteousness thinking, well, they spoke some kind words to each other. They were very kind and generous and gracious. And then they put their arms around each other and they held hands and they walked off together and they just decided that it was best that they, no. I mean, they were going after each other. I mean, it was a full out verbal back and forth and both had their reasons. Paul believed that John Mark was now a loser. He, he left them when it mattered most. And he didn't believe that he even deserved a second chance because the stakes were too high. And Barnabas says, we need to give this guy a second chance. Saul says, you know, we can't afford to. This is too important. And I can imagine Barnabas saying, well, I made sure you got one. And I'm sure both of them had verses to back up their perspective. And that gets really nice when two Christians have diverging points of view and each one has a verse for it. Paul could look at Barnabas and say, well, you know what Solomon said, don't you? Wisest person to have ever lived. Confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broke, broke tooth and a foot out of joint. Barnabas is gonna say, well, you know what Jesus said? One without sin cast the first stone. John Mark had failed, he did. You can read about it in Acts 13, he failed. But Barnabas refused to look at him as a failure. Barnabas was not gonna let John Mark end on a failure. The past of John Mark had not dimmed Barnabas's, Barnabas's belief in his future. So they decided to part companies. Barnabas refused to allow someone's past to make him cynical about their future. Paul goes his way, Barnabas goes his way. Paul becomes a force for Christianity, writes half in the New Testament, plants church after church after church after church. Barnabas goes on to do ministry with John Mark. In time, we know that John Mark hooked up with Peter because in Peter's letter, he refers to John Mark as a son. So John Mark and Peter got very close. 
And 12 or 14 years, somewhere after Barnabas and Paul parted ways, John Mark sat down with Peter and said, tell me all about it. And Peter told him the story of Jesus and Mark wrote it down. And we call that the gospel according to Mark. Who knew that Barnabas was saving one of the four gospels by believing in a guy who had run away scared and coward. But the story doesn't end there. And this is the best part of the story, at least it is for me. Years later, towards the end of Paul's life, he he writes his last letter. It's the letter of 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he writes to his protege, Timothy. And this is what he says. And I imagine he smiles and thinks of Barnabas as he writes these words. He says, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark, that's John Mark. Bring Mark with you when you come for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Barnabas was unwilling to give up on John Mark. Paul was, but in the end, it's like Paul just with a grin on his face said, Barnabas, you old dog, you were right again. And there he was, Barnabas. Half of the New Testament, one of the gospels, the future of a great young pastor by the name of John Mark. And all of those contributions, in my opinion, changed the course of history. Perhaps even saved the future of what Christianity would look like. All because he leveraged his superpower of encouragement. Always giving confidence to someone else always believing in someone else, always depositing hope in someone else, always standing up for, speaking for, the marginalized, the outsider, always bringing someone to the table that wasn't welcome there, using his resources, using his words, using his association, his influence, his wealth, his power for the benefit of other people. So here's my question. How will you leverage your superpower of encouragement? because you've got the superpower of encouragement. You can do the same thing. You can speak confidence into people's lives. You can speak hope into people's lives. You can believe in people that their best is yet to come despite what their past looks like. How will you leverage your superpower of encouragement? Think about this. When you give your strength to others, invest your confidence in others, believe in others, give second chances to others and leverage your influence and power for others, That's the heroic thing to do. Let me put it a little bit simpler, a little shorter. When you choose to be an encourager, you're choosing to be a hero in someone else's life. So who can you encourage? Who do you need to encourage? With words, with generosity? Who do you need to extend a hand to and say, let me bring you to a table that I sit at that someone has told you you're not welcome at? How can you speak up for the minority? How can you speak up for those who suffer the hands of injustice? How can you not only lend your voice, but lend your face, your influence, your standing for the benefit of other people? The power of life and death is in your mouth, your words. What will you do 
with your voice? What will you do with your superpower of encouragement? Heavenly Father, help us to lean in to this capacity that we all have. The capacity to encourage others. The potential that we have to perhaps save the day, change the course of things, to make a difference, to be a hero. It's not very dramatic and it's not very flashy, but it's profound and it's powerful. God, help us to seize opportunities and moments to encourage those around us and help us to be full of expectation and believing that you may just do something that's bigger than our imaginations with our encouragement like you did with Barnabas's. In Jesus' name.